Welcome to Cardiology Journal Club, Treating the Pandemic Heart. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and are part of a continuing education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance. In this episode, Dr. Mary Walsh and Dr. Andrew Freeman discuss several papers that relate to issues cardiology patients face during the pandemic, as well as what they are seeing in their own clinics. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CVD2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Walsh is Medical Director of Heart Failure and Cardiac Transplantation at St. Vincent Heart Center in Indianapolis. And Dr. Freeman is a cardiologist in the Division of Cardiology and the Department of Medicine at National Jewish Health in Denver. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's join our discussion. Dr. Walsh and Dr. Freeman, thank you for joining us today um, to discuss COVID-19 and how it's affected heart care. Um, the pandemic has forced clinicians to think on their feet and more or less without a net due to the absence of randomized clinical trials. There's a lot of noise, but not a clear signal for clear guidance for treating patients who have cardiovascular conditions prior to contracting COVID and those who develop cardiovascular sequelae, or what is now referred to as acute COVID-19 cardiovascular syndrome. Can you both discuss this? What are you seeing in your practices and what is guiding your treatment choices and options? Dr. Walsh, could you begin? Yeah, well, thanks. That's a complex question. And I guess what I would say is um, that we certainly, from the standpoint of treating patients who are acutely ill with COVID-19, we learned a lot in in the community by following um, first the physicians and nurses in Italy who dealt with it first, followed by those on the East Coast, in particular New York. And so a lot of the acute care of all patients with COVID, uh, we, we kind of learned in a sort of a rolling fashion where um, the communities that had the highest uh, numbers of patients really you know, tried initial therapies and helped us kind of end up where we are today, where we actually have in our armamentarium some pretty good drugs to attenuate the course of COVID. Um, So there's kind of two sort of sets of people in the acute setting. One is somebody who comes in with COVID who has no cardiovascular disease um, and may present with some of the symptoms. Maybe they have respiratory symptoms, but they also have uh, symptoms that may be cardiac. They have elevated cardiac markers and um, some evidence on non-invasive imaging, for example, that they may have some degree of cardiac involvement. So that's one set of patients. And then the other set of patients is are people who have already established cardiovascular disease, whatever that might be. It might be coronary disease, uh, heart failure. In my case, uh, we've hospitalized more than a few cardiac transplant patients who have been previously stable. And are infected with COVID. And so we have to deal with a complex decision-making process of not only how do we treat the COVID, do we treat it in the usual fashion that we've been uh, treating, for example, with dexamethasone, remdesivir, uh, some of the monoclonal antibodies, but then what else should we do? Uh, Do we need to um, alter the immunosuppression dosing of that patient and that's really a very patient and individualized decision for each patient, depending on 
how long after transplant they are, what their medicines are, have they had rejection in the past, et cetera. So the question you ask is a good one, but it's a complex answer because actually each patient is very individual. Yeah, I would very much agree. Uh, you know, I think uh, first you bring up an, an important point, which nobody really knows what the gold standard is. And so, you know, for us at our institution, we actually sent people out to New York in the ICUs in New York before our surges came to get some sort of real world experience, if that makes sense. And everyone was trying things, you know, and, and they're all within the standard of care for critical care, you know, proning patients and whatnot, but um, trying to figure out what was going to do best by them. You know, do we give them steroids? Do we not give them steroids? You know, we asked the same questions in sepsis and other severe conditions. So I think we learned a lot from our peers, especially across the, the globe. This was a very global, uh, and I, you know, maybe you feel the same way, uh, very global sort of collaborative network for the first time in a long time on a disease that we're all trying to face. And then further, I would say that I've been seeing a lot on the outpatient um, with long-term sequelae that are difficult to manage. And I'm sure we'll get into that, but uh, you bring up some really important points. Um, for my next question, um, in, the, in these patients, there's a, a, been a lot of talk about uh, post-orthostatic tachycardia or POTS-like syndrome in COVID-19 patients. What are you seeing in this regard, Dr. Freeman? You know, it's a great question. So POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome is commonly seen in, in outpatient clinics uh, that deal with this type of thing. So a lot of times it's the electrophysiologists or the heart rhythm clinics that see that. And really what it is, is an abnormal uh, autonomic response. And so how it's manifesting in many of the COVID patients that I've seen, particularly younger people, particularly younger athletes, is this persistent tachycardia, more of a dysautonomia than POTS per se. I'm not seeing a lot of hypotension. Uh, but I do see some of it. And so I've had a couple of super athletes, you know, these people that run ultra marathons every couple of weeks and, you know, very intense athletes who are absolutely debilitated by this, where their heart rates, you know, are 100 at rest, you know, and they go up a flight of stairs and they're 150 and they feel terrible. And it's a very difficult disease state to manage because, you know, managing sort of physiologic sinus tachycardia is always challenging. And then when you give a young person a drug that might slow the heart rate, it may make them feel even more tired. So there's a lot of sort of, you know, we're trying all sorts of things and nobody knows exactly uh, how to manage this. But um, sadly, it's, 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 uh, it's really debilitating. I mean, I saw a 32-year-old woman the other day who competes around the world, was opening a gym, and uh, believe it or not, uh, could not compete uh, for the last six months. And it's just, it's awful. Dr. Walsh. Yeah, well, also, I would say that we, we're seeing that also in um, in patients that are not as highly trained, uh, too. Just simply younger people, I think we've noticed it in just in the dis sort of discomfort of having an accelerated heart rate when making when uh, doing any activity, whether it's a really intense physical activity or not. And, uh, and especially on self-monitoring, people are, you know, calling and saying, you know, I all I do is I went up the stairs and my heart rate's 160. And, and it's to some extent very similar to patients who have complaints of inappropriate sinus tachycardia. So I think this is an area of a lot of study. What should, you know, why, why is it happening? And also what are the best treatments for this? We do have, um, as Andrew said, beta blockers is one thing, but I mean, is there ever going to be a role for, for example, Abradine for these patients? Would this be a choice for these patients? And and is there any choice down the road for some of the neuromodulation 
devices that we have that we use for in other areas of um, certainly in, in my area of hardware, this is an area of investigation. So it occurs to me that um, that you know there's there's just so much we need to know and we have to continue to investigate. And have you have you seen this resolve in the patients or just is there as yet no real resolution with in post-COVID patients? It's been really variable. Um, you know, I've had some patients now for six months that have had this. And then I've seen uh, a lot past the six-month mark where it starts to wane. Uh, and then in some people, I've had people, you know, where they're tachycardic post their syndrome, they get discharged from the hospital if they were hospitalized. And a couple of weeks later, they're more or less back to normal. So I've seen really rapid resolution and really prolonged uh, uh, discomfort by the patient. And have you seen the same, Dr. Walsh? Yeah, I'd, I'd say about the same. I, I will liken it to um, the sinus tachycardia experienced by, well, uh, pregnant women have, with just normal, uh, without cardiac disease, pregnant women have a rise in heart rate with pregnancy, with normal pregnancy, and but some are extremely uncomfortable and have a baseline high resting heart rate, and sometimes during pregnancy are so uncomfortable that they you know can't move, can't. It's very similar complaints, but... I can always reassure pregnant women that this will be done after delivery. And, and I'm sad to say that there's clearly no uh, such advice we can tell uh, the patients who've experienced COVID because we don't know and every, every journey is different. So we can't say like mo at this point, we can't say most people have resolved by this time frame um, because we're still you know early in the game. Well, let's hope that somewhere down the road get a handle on some of these uh, syndromes. Well, and we've had, uh, you know, there are now um, specialty clinics, post-COVID clinics that a lot of institutions are um, opening up so that the clinicians can work together, like cardiology works with pulmonary. And so there's a lot of intense attention to, the, the, to these conditions because living through COVID is not going to be good if your quality of life is forever limited. Right. Yeah, and I can attest, I mean, at our institution, we're actually setting up a dysautonom a post-COVID dysautonomia clinic, which is a, an EP doc, a heart rhythm doc, and a, a pulmonologist together. Um, and I'm hoping that they come up with some very clever ideas because this is a challenge to treat. Right. Let's turn to um, a treatment that, that there's been a lot of chatter about, uh, colchicine, um, and its potential for use in COVID-19 patients. Um, there's a preprint paper from uh, Jean-Claude Tardif um, and colleagues um, on a randomized double blind trial of, of the drug. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Walsh? Well, it, you know, Dr. Tardif is an experienced investigator with this drug in uh, other areas of cardiovascular disease. And so um, certainly he's a well-established investigator. Um, the preprint is has been kind of released, but this has not been peer-reviewed yet. Um, however, colchicine, which is the uh, drug that was used in a randomized uh, study, um, did appear to attenuate um, COVID from the standpoint of symptom duration and hospitalization. But to my understanding, having read the abstract, at least the, the primary endpoint was actually not met, but um, we're in a situation with a disease state that it, if a medication such as colchicine, which is relatively safe, has been demonstrated to um, be effective in other cardiovascular conditions, 
it's available. We can talk about the expense or not. It used to be dirt cheap. It no longer is, but it may be one of the next things we begin to use, but I'm really going to await the peer reviewed paper before I, you know, start prescribing that to patients. Yeah. And I, I would agree. I think, you know, it, it certainly is a promising and exciting to think that there could be a therapy that would reduce risk of bad outcome in COVID. You know, colchicine in itself has been used for like centuries, I believe at this point. Uh, and it's a very potent anti-inflammatory drug. So whatever it appears to be modulating, I'm hoping it is, is quite successful. But again, I don't think we have enough data to make a firm conclusion just yet. Right. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Um, Let's turn a little bit to uh, coagulopathy. In a, in a previous uh, Journal Club podcast, we had um, discussed this and the use of oral anticoagulants and other therapy, um, and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute re recently issued a statement um, noting the benefits of anticoagulation. Um, can you touch upon this a little bit? And also, um, the, there also seemed to be a bit about um, atrial fibrillation in these patients and the use of, of anticoagulation. Dr. Freeman? Well, at least from my perspective, right, if someone has an, an indicated reason to be on an anticoagulant, you know, by all means, unless they're having some sort of major bleeding issue, you know, the question becomes is, do you take someone who comes into the hospital with COVID and anticoagulate them? And if you do, what do you use and for how long? And I think there's a lot of debate and nuance to that, depending on what the patient's risk factors are. You know, I, I think there's no doubt that, that COVID creates some sort of hypercoagulable state, which even persists after hospitalization. I was uh, talking uh, the other day with a patient who came in and was feeling fine, survived ICU discharge. He says, by the way, doc, one of my legs is swollen. And I was like, oh, really? So I look at it and it's, you know, twice as big as the other. And of course, an ultrasound of his leg showed a blood clot. So of course he had an indicated reason to be on a blood thinner. The question is, should he have been discharged on a blood thinner or started in the hospital? And I think there's a lot of debate about that, depending on you know how sedentary the patient is and what their risk factors are. Uh, and I, I've seen sort of the, the management vary depending on who I get from the hospital if it's not me that's managing. I don't know, Minnow, if you have uh, thoughts about what you've seen. Yeah, well, um, COVID has been um, characterized by microthrombi as well as um, the, the usual uh, thromboembolic complications of uh, any uh, serious illness, including deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary emboli, et cetera. Um, most patients who are at bed rest in a hospital are, are, are many, if they have no contraindication, are treated with prophylactic anticoagulation if they're not ambulatory. Um, there's not firm evidence yet in randomized studies to, to look at whether patients do better long-term if they're anticoagulated in the hospital in the absence of, as Andrew says, the other, another indication for need for, um, for uh, anticoagulation. And so I, I don't think we know yet, and I know I've said this before, but it is every patient's individual and, and we have to look at their thromboembolic risk profile before making a decision because we can't forget that full, full anticoagulation in any patient brings with it risk of uh, gastrointestinal hemorrhage, uh, intracranial hemorrhage, and some of this can be catastrophic too in the setting of other uh, complications of COVID, which may include a septic state or or other complications. So, uh, again, I don't I don't know that we are ready to say you know we need to prophylactically anticoagulate everybody at a higher at a more fully anticoagulated state than we have done so for hospitalized patients on a routine basis. 
What about patients who come in who are already on anticoagulation? At least for me, I usually keep them on. Um, sometimes there's a little bit of a blessing in disguise. You know, when people are in a stressful state admitted with almost anything, they can develop a fib that we wouldn't have developed uh, noted before. And so it's an indication right there many times for anticoagulation. So that is always a, you know, if there is a blessing, there, that may be it. But uh, in general, if someone comes in and they're on a blood thinner and they're not having bleeding issues, I usually keep them on it. Right. Yeah, the only thing we might do in a hospitalized patient is to switch the anticoagulation. If we thought the patient was going to need frequent procedures, we might change from an oral anticoagulant to a um, intravenous uh, unfractionated heparin, for example. Um, but in a lesser ill patient, we would just continue the anticoagulation. Okay. Yeah, and I will say that, you know, just as a modifier that on occasion, you know, these folks that when they get really sick will, you know, go into renal failure and we may have to make an adjustment or, or, or change the drug altogether depending on what happens. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to um, vaccines. Um, and we have two vaccines that are already out there and being distributed um, and more are coming down the pike. Are there any patients who should not get COVID-19 vaccine, um, such as transplant patients or others on immunosuppression? Um, and what should your colleagues know when it comes to discussing vaccines with their um, cardiac patients? Yeah, there's. I, I think everybody, every clinician hearing this should read the CDC guidelines on this because there are very few patients who are recommended to not receive this vaccine, this mRNA vaccine. Um, and they generally involve patients who've had previous anaphylaxis. But uh, other than that, any patient with any cardiovascular disorder uh, should have the vaccine. And so should anybody with any, uh, again, the, literally the, the narrow contraindication is prior anaphylaxis. There's you know, about two paragraphs that the CDC uh, mentions, and that's it. So we have, and also our um, professional societies, including the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation came out quite early when the vaccine was becoming available, recommending it to all uh, solid organ transplant patients. So we have uh, been reassuring patients. It's something that in my clinic, I talk to every patient every time about the vaccine. In Indiana, we just today, I just uh, saw an email that we went to 65 and up. In Indiana, we were previously 70 and up. And there's a need for constant messaging to patients because in spite of the fact that it's all over the news, they often want to hear directly from their own physician whether they should get the vaccine. So that was a long answer to there are very few contraindications to the vaccine. Yeah, you know, I, I would agree. Actually, I, I spent uh, Friday giving uh, uh, over 200 vaccines in the parking lot at my institution. Nice. And uh, it was, you know, really rewarding. First time the patients are happy to see their doctor and no complaints and ready for a needle and things you don't normally get. Uh, so that was that was nice. And, you know, That's you know, great. I've had patients come in and say, well, doc, I've had, you know, anaphylaxis to strawberries or some antibiotic. And I explain that these are not there. And then, you know, most people were monitoring 15 minutes post-vaccine. And then for those that are higher risk, we monitor for 30 to 60 minutes at whatever their comfort is. Um, and then I usually make sure they have an EpiPen in their car because they're all in their cars just to make sure if there's a problem, they're ready to go. And our institution was really smart. We put um, paramedics actually that would circulate and check on the patients before they would go. So we were really careful about that. That said, we gave out um, the Pfizer one, which at least appears to have slightly less anaphylaxis risk. Uh, but the Moderna one is also very safe. And in general, what I'm telling patients is, you know, unless you have an incredibly good reason, you really, there's no reason not to give this a try and uh, it may significantly benefit you. But most importantly, 
you know, a lot of times patients forget that we ourselves, as their trusted clinicians that they've seen for years, have gotten these vaccines. And we, most of us at least, wouldn't uh, allow us to be injected with some random science without vetting it ourselves. And so for a lot of times, patients are very reassured to hear like, oh, well, Dr. Freeman or Dr. Walsh, where they spent some time really making sure this was the right thing. You know, we all really vetted this. And obviously, we're here today to provide care because we lived through the vaccine. Uh, and I would tell you, gosh, most of my patients were so very thankful uh, to hear this news. And then when I gave out the vaccines, you know, it's a little teeny needle. It's a tiny little amount. I mean, literally, it took less than a second. And most of the patients are like, well, when are you going to give it to me, doc? And I was like, it's done. And they're like, wow, that was easy. So it's really benign. It's really quick. The only thing to make sure is that patients come back for their second dose if they're getting a two-dose version. I think we have to comment here that um, I know there's a lot of variability in how states have been rolling out the vaccine. And I don't want to comment on that, but I want to make a very strong statement that there are not vaccine clinics in lower socioeconomic areas. And, and I think we've got to acknowledge that. I'm not blaming any one particular state, but it's universal. And if it's not coming into your neighborhood, you're not going. And so we have to do a better job of um, getting resources for all the states to expand uh, where you can get the vaccine and the hours that you can get the vaccine in order to serve everybody. Because I've been keeping a tally, for example, in our state, and I think we've done uh, our state done a really good job of the rollout, but I've been keeping a weekly tally, and it's on Twitter if you want to read it, um, of how who's vaccinated matches up to our population. And we have yet to be vaccinating the Latinx and African-American population uh, at, to the percentage that they are in our state. So we're, we're over-vaccinating white people and under-vaccinating black and, and Latinx patients or people. So I think that everybody should kind of look up their own statistics and see how they're doing in their state and, and see if we can um, expand access to the vaccine to everybody. Yeah, very much agreed. Uh, you know, where where we're located at National Jewish is actually in an area that's not, you know, particularly wealthy. So we got a good mix of folks, but I would say that it would be sure great to get this out uh, in the communities. You know, there's the, that uh, U.S. law that if all goes uh, not necessarily according to plan, the post office may be able to deliver a vaccine. Uh, I wonder if we'll ever have to enact that. Um, but I sure think it would be amazing if we could figure out a way to give some self-administration kit to every citizen by whatever means. Sure, it'd be wonderful. And I sure hope that uh, our uh, our government is listening to this, that we can figure out a way to do it much more quickly. I think that's one of the things that um, COVID-19 has really brought to the fore more so than any other time is the incredible disparities of care that we have across the country. Yeah, so. I, I actually, I heard a news report yesterday that was somewhat chilling. It was a, a, a nurse interviewed at a... Um, hospital, more like a county hospital with a fairly um, indigent population and they have a vaccine clinic. And he, the nurse was mentioning the fact that they've been seeing cars such as Mercedes and Porsches and people with wealth coming to the clinic. And, you know, so it, it it's, there's clear disparity in who is being vaccinated in the United States. Well, and you can think about it just like this, right? So in, in many places, if these are drive-up vaccine sites, many of them don't offer the option for walk-up. A walk-up, right? So, <laughs> yes. so just having a vehicle, uh, you know, many times yes. is the differentiator, which is unfortunate. At least near us, we're, we're opening this up hopefully soon in some of the stadiums so people literally can walk up. So. Right. That'd be awesome. 
Um, and finally, one of the things that I know that's um, near and dear to, to both of you is prevention. And we know how important that is just for cardiovascular disease in general. But um, do you want to talk about that a little bit in the context of COVID-19, Dr. Walsh? Well, a lot of people are looking forward to a time when we get back to normal. And I, I do often talk to my patients about what the new normal will be. And I firmly believe we will be masked in um, certain settings for a long time, probably forever. Um, I would imagine that um, public transportation, buses, trains, and certainly airplanes, we would, it may not be mandated, but one of the most extraordinary things about the COVID pandemic is the fact that influenza rates have been so low in the United States and other parts of the world. And that is um, a lot has to do with the masking. And in fact, I, the pediatric death rate from influenza is almost zero this year. And social distancing and masking has brought us that. So I think that when we think about prevention in this, and Andrew's an expert in prevention, cardiovascular prevention, but when I think about COVID prevention, I think, you know, I'm not sure we're gonna shake hands anymore. <laughs> and I, I know that we'll be masking for some time. And that doesn't mean we're not gonna go out to restaurants and have fun and see people. But I, I do think a certain level of prevention, which is masking. And also, you know, we as physicians used to think it was okay to come to work sick. That is so not the case anymore. I mean, he had a little cold, it was no big deal, but you, you never would call in sick for that. And now you do not go to work if you're sick. And that, that's a culture change in, in medicine that I, I think we should embrace. And that's, I don't think we've talked about that enough, but it's very true. We, we have an app, we have to log in on our phone and you know, say what our, if, that we have no symptoms before we can walk into our hospital every day. That may not change. That, that's a level of prevention that I think we should embrace. Well, and to echo those comments, I would say that, you know, there, there's a little bit of a yuck factor now that we look at it with our retrospective uh, goggles on, right? You know, when you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with whoever, you're breathing in all their stuff and all, you know, it's just, yeah. so at the end of the day, I, you know, I'm kind of surprised, you know, I think about, you know, sitting at Grand Rounds and you're literally surrounded in every direction with people. And then you go to a stadium and you're even tighter. And if you're on one of these subways in New York where I grew up, you know, you know, literally just breathing in down people's neck. It's just disgusting to think about. But anyway, so that said, I would also tell you, you know, I have four kids at home now and I have not experienced not that what a cold all year, you know, and so, the, you know, normally they bring home all kinds of stuff. So I would agree that I think there is something to, to the masking, although it is in some ways socially distancing or isolating. But I think from a prevention standpoint, I've been using COVID as a, as a call to action, right? We know that the most susceptible people are obese and have cardiovascular disease, much of which is lifestyle related. And if you look, the average American is the perfect susceptible person to this disease, right? They're obese, they have high blood pressure, they have heart disease or heart failure, um, and they have respiratory disease and they're sedentary, and, you know, whatever it may be. And so all of a sudden, you know, the, this is the perfect host, if you will. So I've been asking people to say, you know what, this is a great year, a great time, or it was last year at least, to, and hopefully this year to, for part of it, to focus inward, right? To work on exercising, to work on what you're eating every day, to making sure you're getting enough sleep, uh, washing those hands, you know, all these different lifestyle factors that most of us would take for granted. And I would tell you that, you know, it appears that not only does good nutrition and good uh, exercise and lifestyle support immunity, uh, but also being trimmer and fitter seems to support immunity and make us less susceptible. So, you know, I think it's a great opportunity. And then further to that is 
during this pandemic, we've had a lot of people stay at home with whatever heart disease they have, right? If roughly 50% of Americans have some form of heart disease, and a lot of that's high blood pressure, a lot of people are putting off their blood pressure checks or their med adjustments or their heart attack at homes, which we've had quite a few of, uh, or heart failure that develops at home as a result of a heart attack that wasn't treated, you know, lots of bad things. So, you know, we have to be, remember that heart disease is still the number one killer, even in the setting of the pandemic. Seeing your doctor when you're having heart-related symptoms, right? If you suddenly can't breathe or your legs are swollen or your belly's swollen or your whatever it may be, you got to go get checked out. And I think people are starting to get back on that page again. But man, it was for a while there, right? You know, a lot of my really sick patients like literally disappeared. And it was really scary when they came out of the woodwork uh, to see just how uh, bad some of them had gotten. So I think, you know, putting together the lifestyle, putting together getting the appropriate care, for much of which is, you know, the silent killer, killer, right? Like high blood pressure is still the silent killer, really important. So I, I would echo all the comments said, but I, I really want to encourage people, you know, grab life by the horns, get yourself better, eat better, sleep enough, and see your doctor when you have symptoms. That's important. Dr. Walsh, anything else to add? No, and that that's a perfect summary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very passionate about this, as you know. <laughs> you are. <laughs> and any last uh, closing thoughts just about this patient population, you know, during this pandemic, any parting pearls that, that you'd like to give our listeners, Dr. Freeman? I think for me, the, the call to action on lifestyle is the most important pearl, not only for your patients, but for us ourselves, right? You know, doctor, heal thyself. A lot of us are the worst examples of health, right? We sit around all day, we eat whatever donuts are around, we don't exercise, we're under a lot of stress, you know, we don't sleep enough, you know, all these things which we need to fix. So let's fix ourselves. Let's be the example for our patients. Um, let's encourage physical activity that's socially distanced, outdoors, et cetera, whatever it may be. And, and let's keep people from getting to the place where they get COVID, they get sick to whatever extent we can. Dr. Walsh. Yeah, the only other thing I'd add, and it's a huge topic, but we didn't cover it, but I think um, isolation and depression have been um, a major, major issue during the pandemic for everyone. And, uh, and the ramifications of this, and you, there's lots of data about um, how we've lost lives over this. So I think all of us as clinicians who are listening need to be aware of um, talking with our patients about that openly. I've had more patients than ever in my career talk to me about depression during the, sometimes the only time they've come out of their home is to see us because they have their groceries delivered, their kids are doing everything else for them. And it's literally the first time they've been out of their house. And so I think uh, mental health is something we have to keep in mind um, during the pandemic and beyond. Yeah, and I actually stress that a lot actually in my clinic. So first you'll get a kick out of this. If you try to buy a dog right now, they're almost sold right. out everywhere, right? So <laughs> yeah. There's actually really good evidence that shows that having a dog actually reduces cardiovascular event rate, which I always get a kick out of. But I would agree that even the CDC has identified loneliness as a major risk factor for bad outcome. And so it's really important that we have people connect and get outside. And a lot of times being outside and being mindful and getting rid of the stress, they all kind of work together along with exercise. And then, you know, if you don't want to be with someone, even doing this right here with, uh, you know, Zoom or whatever it may be and connecting with other people, it's, it's still fun. It's not the same as it is in real life, uh, but, you know, it's still something. And I think that's an important aspect that many of us have forgotten. Absolutely. This has been a wonderful conversation and I thank you both for joining our Journal Club podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CVD2 
to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other cardiology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash cardiology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits.